Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. You have one hour to go through the entire book of Revelation. It begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which will shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel into his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then it goes into the blessing that comes, which Chad alluded to already. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Keep those things which are written therein. So it does apply to the church. If the church was not in the tribulation period, he would hardly say that the church that it's the churches that are addressed to, which represent the church as a whole, should be able to heed and pay attention to these warnings and apply them to their lives if they're not going to be there. Because he says, blessed is he that reads and he that hears and they that keep the words of this prophecy. And then he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion now and forever and ever. Amen. Then we have this glorious picture in the very next verse, verse 7, of Christ's second coming, because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ and his return as well. And it goes on to say, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kings of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and is to come, the Almighty. Then John begins to describe what happened. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And then John goes on to say, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girded about the pass with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Then he goes on to say uh, what give basic outline in the very next verse, which is verse 19. He says, And what thou hast seen, he says, Write what thou hast seen, which is the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the things which are, because he's going to be addressing the seven churches, in verse chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be hereafter, meaning the things that will take place in the future that the church needs to be ready for, chapter 4 onward through chapter, most of chapter 22. So as we go through the chapter 1, we get this incredible uh, introduction, and we even get an outline, right? The things which shall have seen, the things which are, the things, things which shall be hereafter, so we can break down and understand the book of Revelation. When you get to chapter 2 and chapter 3, 
he talked about writing these letters to these seven churches. Now you have specific specific letters to seven different churches. The first one is the church at Ephesus. And I'm not using notes here because we'd be in big trouble. I'd never get through it in an hour. So I said, Lord, help me to just go through prayer and what you've burned in my heart and much of what I've memorized in the book of Revelation to share with you. And the church at Ephesus, it is a good church in some ways, but it is a failing church in other ways, Many, like many of our churches today. And he first commends them for dotting their I's and crossing their theological T's. They're a church that is very discerning. Uh, they have hated, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, I also hate. He commends them for that. He commends them because they have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and they've found them lying, and they have found them liars. They said these are false apostles, much like many of the churches are doing today. They'll look at what's going on at Reading. They look at what's going on in the false counterfeit revivals of these guys claiming to be apostles who are taking people into new ageism and, and false forms of spirituality, and they have discernment. But he has a, they, this church has a problem. Even though he commends them for certain things, he says, but I have this against thee. Thou hast left thy first love. And that is incredibly serious. We can't just be in apologetics and discernment and understanding truth and not have a devotional life, not be seeking Jesus, not be crying out to him, not be pursuing him as our first love. They have left their first love. And he says to them, they need to get back to their first love. Tells them to do three things, which I call the three R's. He says, to remember from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, which is repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Do what you did when you were a new believer, when you were in love with Jesus, that prayer life, that devotional life, and so forth, where you were seeking him, where you were wanting to know him, where you were wanting to share him with others, and on and on. Now, it's interesting with the seven churches, uh, with each church at the end, you have something like this, uh, you know, where he actually pronounces not only a warning slash promise or a promise slash warning to the overcomers, but he also says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these seven churches, which some believe the church at Ephesus depicts a church age, the first church age, and then Smyrna, the next church age, all the way to the last church age, Laodicea. That's not what's going on there. These are the things that are. These are seven churches that existed at that time. And all seven of these churches represent all kinds of different churches whether they're, they're wonderful things or whether they're bad things that are happening in these churches are reflected later in history and they're written down for our instruction, just like the Old Testament was. So with each of the seven churches, you also have a promise to the overcomer. And at the church at Ephesus, he warns them that if they don't repent, who remove their candlestick or their lampstand out of its place. And we know from chapter one, Jesus is in the midst of the seven candlesticks or seven lampstands. And if you remove one of those lampstands out of its place, it means they'll be removed from the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, they're given a promise. He that overcomes at the church of Ephesus, uh, they receive access to the tree of life. And this is very important because the tree of life is a picture of salvation. And we see in the promises to the overcomers that you have these conditions that you must be an overcomer as a believer to inherit these things. And these things, by and large, are, are pictures of salvation itself. So the overcomer is not just a, is not some super Christian, but they are genuine believers who just, who persevere in the faith. So if you're an overcomer, we know what an overcomer is because they're defined in Revelation 12, 11. And we read in Revelation 12, 11, uh, and they, meaning the overcomers, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. So the overcomer has his victory. The ground of our victory is through the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, was buried and rose again. But we also must have a testimony, must confess Christ as Lord and Savior. We must put our faith in him, and we must do it unto the point of death. They overcame, it's the scriptures say, unto the point of death. Jesus said, he that endures the end, the same shall be saved. And so we see this, these promised overcomers, which are also warnings, because 
Today, you have all kinds of people who claim to be Christians, but they're not even following. They're not overcomers. They're, they're just often, you know, hypocrites or apostate, but they're not truly following Jesus. We need to make sure we're truly following Jesus. And when you get to the next church, and I know I need to keep moving if we're going to get done in an hour, so I can't really get in that in the depth I want to get into any of these churches, but the church of Smyrna, which is the second church in Revelation chapter 2 out of the 7 and chapter 2 and 3, and it's a suffering church. And this is one of the two churches that Jesus has nothing negative to say about, the other one being the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3. Uh, he commends this church. Uh, he doesn't say anything negative about this church. However, though, he gives them a severe warning. They must persevere through their suffering. He says, the devil will cast you into prison for 10 days. He says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. In the Greek, it's the crown, which is life. Now, this church is has a name that they are poor, but he says they're rich because they're spiritually rich. But they're going to suffer. And as a suffering church, they must persevere. And then if they persevere, he'll give them the crown of life if they're faithful to death. But guess what? He says he that overcomes right after this will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, you must be an overcomer. You must be faithful to death to get the crown of life, crown which is life. You must be an overcomer so you don't partake of the second death, which is later defined in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 as the lake of fire where there's torment for eternity, actually, in chapter 14 as well. So uh, we go on to the next two churches there, and we got to speed up a little bit, but the church of Pergamos and the church of Thyatira, or Pergamum in our modern translations, these are two churches that have dabbled in paganism. Uh, One of these churches has given heed to the teachings of Jezebel, a false prophetess, and Jesus comes down on them because they have this, they, they tolerate this false prophetess in the church who teaches his servants leading his servants astray to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. And Jesus talks about casting her children into death. He gave her space to repent, showing how gracious the Lord is. He even gives Jezebel, this false prophetess, space to repent of her sin, but she doesn't want to repent. So she'll be cast herself into a sickbed and and death if there's no future repentance. Uh, It's very important that we see how severe the Lord is because he's defying and with some of these churches as having eyes of fire, when you start to look at there's what's something really heavy going on when you look at the churches, when you're reading through them, you'll see take, things taken from the vision that Jesus takes of the vision that he gave because he wanted certain things to be seen about him in chapter 1, and then he applies them to the Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 to the churches. For instance, eyes of fire. He can see right into who we are, right into our motives and everything else. And then also, when you have these letters to the churches, you have things like he'll come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. That's a picture of a second coming in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, he says uh, to the church after in chapter 3, the very first church he speaks to, the church of Sardis. He talks to the church of Sardis about, and that's the, that's the fifth of the seven churches because you have the first four, which we've addressed very, very briefly, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira. But then when you get to the fifth church, Revelation chapter 3, the first few verses, this church it ties into to what's going to happen in the future in the tribulation period because they represent churches that will be either weak or strong at that time. And they have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. They're not totally dead because they're supposed to strengthen those things, he goes on to say, that remain, that are ready to die. Because there's a few in that church, he says, only a few, and that's how a lot of churches are today, who have not soiled their garments. Talking about the garments of salvation. They haven't polluted themselves with the world. And he talks about those who overcome. Those are the ones who have not soiled their garments. He talks about how they will walk with him in white. 
And he says he'll confess their names before the Father and before the angels. That harks back to Jesus' warning that if you confess him as promised, he'll confess you before the Father. If you deny him, he'll deny you before the Father in heaven. Here he says, I'll confess the overcomer's name before the Father. That's because the overcomer is confessing his name. He'll confess the overcomer's name before the Father and before the holy angels. And for the overcomer, he promises he will not erase their names or blot their names out of the book of life. Yes, he, that's, that's a conditional promise. You have to be an overcomer. What's it, an overcomer? That means you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You have the word of your testimony. You love not your lives unto death. So your name is not blotted out of the book of life. Exodus chapter 32, verse 33, names are blotted out there in the book of life. Psalm 69, names are blotted out of the book of life as well. The scriptures are very clear on this. And uh, then when you get to the, Revel- the very next church, the church of Philadelphia, this is the other church where he has nothing negative to say about it. It's the church of the open door. It's the church that keeps the word of his perseverance. They love Jesus. They love his word. They have a little strength. They're persecuted to a degree, but they hold fast the testimony of Jesus. And because of that, he says in Revelation chapter uh, 3, verse 10, the church of Philadelphia, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, in the modern translation is perseverance, I also will keep thee from the hour of tribulation shall come upon uh, the world to test those that dwell on the earth. Now, it's interesting that keeping from there in the Greek is tereo ek. Those who keep God's word is a conditional promise. It's not for everybody. It's for those in the church who are the overcomers who keep his word. He will keep us from the hour of tribulation, which will come upon the earth. By the way, from there doesn't mean that we never enter into it. The Greek word is tereo ek, kept from. Tereo ek only use one other place in the entire New Testament together. And that is in John chapter 17, verse 15, where by Jesus uh, says in his high priestly prayer for, for the church, he says, I don't pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world, like a pre-trib rapture, but that thou shouldest keep them from, tereo ek, the evil one. So we can be kept from without being raptured out of the world. And by the way, that preposition ek, when you study even introductory Greek grammars, it's a very simple preposition used hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times through the New Testament. And almost every single time, it has to do with, with emergence from within a sphere. And, it come, and coming out of that sphere. So he uses the act out of the tribulation. He's talking about being in it and coming out of it. What does he mean? He'll deliver us out of the tribulation. And, and, be, and how are we kept? That means if we keep his word and we abide in him, that he will, he will, he will preserve us from falling away, that we will per, be preserved in the faith and that we will come to the other side of this life and the other side of the tribulation or through the tribulation, if we are to die, we will stand before him in his presence and be preserved. Then he goes on to speak of his coming. Uh, it's beautiful. Then when you get to the seventh and last church in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, it is a lukewarm church. It is a church that has a name. I mean, they, they, th- they say that they're wealthy. They have need of nothing on and on. He says, you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And they're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, get salve so they can see. And, 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 and their faith is supposed to be tried in such a way where they can actually be like gold that's been tried in the fire but they're lukewarm. And he says, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So they must repent and get right. So many professing believers today are lukewarm. They're not hot or cold. They're just going along for the ride and they're just showing up to church and they're not really passionately seeking the Lord. They're not seeking to make him known. So it's very, very important to evaluate our lives and say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, where am I out of my faith? If we say five, that's not good. Five is lukewarm. I say, God, help me to be on fire. Help me to be in love with you and cry out for that. And if we ask, we have not because we ask not, but if we ask according to his will and is, is his will that we're hot for Jesus, he'll allow us and help us to be hot for himself. So that's the first three chapters and I'm probably a little bit behind. So I'm going to speed up a little bit. But in Revelation uh, chapter four, we have this heavenly scene in the very beginning. These are the things hereafter now, 
after the after his discussion with the churches, and you get this heavenly scene where you have this incredibly beautiful picture of the Father on his throne. No one can see God in all his glory and live until we're in our resurrected bodies, and we'll see at the very end of Revelation, we're actually able to see God in that final state, which is absolutely amazing. But you see, uh, there's an emerald rainbow around his throne. He's like a sardius and jasper uh, uh, stone, just radiant beauty coming from his throne. And you have this circular throne with the 24 thrones of the 24 elders around the Father, and the Son, we'll find out in chapter 5, is also in that throne. And you also have the four living creatures, uh, which are the anointed cherubs, the, the cherubim. Uh, there would be five, perhaps, but there's only four because one of those creatures fell. That was Lucifer, who's called the anointed cherub that fell in Ezekiel chapter 28. And he fell with his musical instruments, according to Isaiah chapter 14. And Ezekiel alludes to these percussion instruments as well. And that makes a lot of sense because when the four living creatures begin to praise the Lord, who's the, the Father who's on the throne, that praise goes to then the 24 elders. And then when you go to chapter 5, it goes beyond the four living creatures, then to the 24 elders, then to the angels in heavens, then to everybody throughout the entire cosmos, showing that the, these cherubim were are our worship leaders, and they don't cease day and night to say, holy, 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 are thou Lord God Almighty, which shows you that they're identified with the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. I also believe that they're identified as the cherubim. I don't believe there are seraphim and cherubim. I believe seraphim means fiery ones, describes the cherubim because they're so close to the throne and to him who is a consuming fire that no one can be in their presence, that they hide themselves with their faces, with their wings and their feet and so forth. You have the same description of the same faces as you have the cherubim in chapter uh, in chapters of Ezekiel. And you have the same description of the wings uh, in, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, one place it says four wings, but he's just seen the wings he saw. There's no contradiction there. Absolutely amazing. When you get to chapter 5, now you see the Son of God with the Father on the throne, the Lamb of God. And Jesus is called the Lamb over 30 times in the book of Revelation, more than the entire rest of the Bible put together. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is there. But there's a seven-sealed scroll that's very mysterious. And what's going on there in Revelation chapter 5 is it's hard to comprehend with regard to the scroll who can open it. And John begins to bawl and weep because he knows, he's crying because he knows this thing needs to be needs to be opened up if humanity is going to have a future, if there's going to be redemption. He does. He knows this, this if the history is to be executed in advance, uh, the history that's written about, this, these seals are going to have to be popped. And he's crying, and the elder says to John, stop crying. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right, the root of David, he's prevailed, he has overcome to open and given the right to open the scroll and pop those seven seals and look therein. And then John, as he hears that, he looks and he sees one that looks like a lamb that has been slain, which shows you that Jesus is still in his resurrected body and he has those wounds. And uh, then there's all this rejoicing that goes on. And that's that praise and worship that starts with the four living creatures and spreads throughout the cosmos. And actually we see the father and the son being worshiped together. And the son receives the same worship that the father receives, even as Jesus says to all the father, that the son be honored, even as the father is honored and how they're equal in the gospel of John. And again, you see the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's called the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega, beginning to the end, the Almighty in chapter one. And there you see it reiterated in chapter five. Then when you get to chapter six, the first verses, you see the lamb popping the first seals. And he says, come. And the first four seals are represent four different horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first horseman is the horseman that is a the white horse. And he's the white horse rider. And he represents a false peace. He, re, he represents a false Christ. Just like the beginning of the tribulation, 
Revelation chapter 6 is a blow of mine because Revelation 6 takes you from the beginning of the tribulation, the false priests and false prophets that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, all the way to the end of the tribulation when immediately after the tribulation, Jesus talked about the stars falling from heaven and the Son of Man coming and judgment coming upon the earth. You see that all the way from the first seal, then you see that at the sixth seal. You see the Olivet Discourse basically outlined right there because what people don't understand, it's not all chronological. There's a recapitulation and different pictures of the tribulation period throughout these things, which is what I wanted you to try to understand as well. So what's amazing here is the white horse rider goes, he has a crown, but it's a Stephanos in the Greek. It's a victor's crown. It's not the diademas, which are in the white horse rider at the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ comes back on his white horse. He has a bow where Jesus has at the end of the tribulation, he has a sword that protrudes from his mouth. And this one starts at the beginning of the tribulation. Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation. He comes forth like the Antichrist will to conquer and so forth. And then what follows him is the red horse. And the red horse is given a great sword. He is the, this is the war horse. Uh, there's war that breaks forth and bloodshed because guess what? That white horse went forth conquering, right? Now you see the, the, the result of that. There's blood everywhere because through peace, the Bible says the Antichrist will destroy many. And there's the red horse. And then guess what? After the red horse, you have, uh, you have the black horse, which represents famine. Uh, and you have a voice that comes from the throne talking about how there needs to be, or there's going to be one quart of wheat for a, a day's wages, basically, a denarius, which was a day's wages for the working man in those days, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and that's horse food. So the horse food will be cheaper, but it's going to take it's going to take your living to buy enough food to exist. What about all the other things? So there's famine uh, that it results, and that's what happens when there's war. There's famine, and then after that, you have the black horse, and the black horse is the horse of death. I should say we have the black horse, the number third, the three horse, the fourth horse is the ashen horse or the pale horse, and he is the horse of death following famine, and he wipes out a quarter of humanity. One-fourth of humanity is wiped out, and that would be almost two billion people if that was to happen soon, right, uh, are wiped out. And that's not to mention all these other people that are wiped out in these other judgments. So you have a quarter of people wiped out. And then you have the fifth seal. And the fifth seal you have, just like you have in the Olivet Discourse, after you have false Christ and false prophets, and you have famine mentioned in Luke chapter uh, 21, and just before that, wars and rumors of wars, kingdom against nation, nation kingdom against kingdom, and then you have the believers are being put to death, being killed for the name of Jesus. Well, the fifth seal, guess what? You have the souls of those who are under the altar in heaven crying out to God, how long, O God, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out, when are you going to judge these guys? Because beginning of this period is the Antichrist conquering and conquer, and a lot of this is the Lord allowing the delusion of the Antichrist, which is also a judgment, by the way, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, and now they're wanting recompense. Where's the recompense? They're saying, Lord, how long can you avenge our blood in chapter 5? These, these souls, which shows you there's no soul sleep. They haven't been resurrected yet. There hasn't been a rapture yet. There's no mention of a pre-trip rapture in the book of Revelation because there isn't one. It hasn't been believed for the first 1,800 years of church history. But what do you see right there? In Revelation chapter 5, you have this incredible uh, picture of, of the saints crying out. And guess what the Lord shows them with the sixth seal? The very next seal, he shows them a picture of the end. He shows them, he just because this is what the end's going to look like to encourage them. So the sixth seal, what do you see? You see this incredible, radical picture of the sky rolling up like a scroll. You see the stars falling from heaven, you know. You see, you see every mountain and island moved out of its place because of this great earthquake. And you have the uh, kings of the earth crying for the mountains and the, to, to fall upon them and crush them. Why? This is not right before the end. This is the end. Because right before the end, you have the beast and the kings of the earth 
uh, defying Christ at Armageddon, wanting to fight against him, but not now because he's come. And he want, they want to be crushed now. So this brings you to the very end. The, the, the sixth seal shows you a picture of the end. And they're crying for it. And they're going to say, hide us from the terrible wrath of him who sits in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then they say, who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand his wrath? Well, guess what? Revelation chapter 7 gives the answer as to who is going to be able to stand. And guess what? It's a parenthetical chapter which answers that question. And we'll get in that chapter. You see 144,000 from, from 12 different tribes. 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. God is not done with Israel, brothers and sisters, and they're sealed in their foreheads so they won't partake of the coming judgments. So what's going to happen, what's happening there, he's showing that the judgments that will lead up to what happens in the sixth seal in the very end, God will protect the 144,000 from the wrath to come. And he puts a mark or a seal in their forehead. And we can get an idea what that seal is probably like because in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, those who lamented when the Babylonians were coming and God was going to judge them with similar judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation, uh, but far less, he says to these six henchmen, wait before you destroy the wicked. For this other entity, this other being who has an ink box to put a tov on the forehead of each of those who sigh and groan. These are the repentant. These are those who keep themselves separate from that which is evil, and they'll be protected. And the death angel will pass over them. These, I should say, these, these six henchmen will pass over them. So guess what happens? You're five minutes from halfway. Five okay, minutes five minutes from halfway. <clears throat> Lord, help us. Amen. So what you have here is you have this incredible uh, picture of them being spared, and the tov was put on their heads, and in the ancient curse of script, that was a cross, okay? That was a cross, and uh, a picture of a cross. And guess what? These guys will be sealed. But then you also have this great multitude that no man can number from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue who have washed their robes white, standing before the throne. They're able to stand true. These are the Gentile believers. This is what a better picture of the church. You can't find a better picture of the church in the New Testament, perhaps, because these are people from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And they come out of the great tribulation. They don't taken out before it. They come ek, out of the great tribulation. And that's the church also being spared. They don't have to be sealed in their foreheads at that time because guess what? We are already sealed. We already have the cross. We already cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're already not appointed to the wrath of God. We already have the seal in our forehead as believers and are not appointed to the wrath of God. Then when you get to chapter 8, you have this radical wrath of God poured out upon them. And uh, you have the very first, the, the seventh seal opened up, which when you open that seventh seal, the whole book of Revelation opens up then. The whole scroll opens up, and then you get the details of what leads up to the judgment of the sixth seal or the seventh trumpet or the seventh bowl, which I'll show you the same very last judgment. So in chapter 8, you have uh, the first four judgments of the trumpet judgments. You have a, a, a uh, hail, a fire thrown down to the earth and blood and the land, the green grass is, is, is burned up. You have a great mountain in the second a trumpet thrown down to the earth. It's probably a huge asteroid, and it hits uh, hits actually the sea, and it kills a third of the wild, uh, a third of the fish in the sea, and a third of the ships. And then you have uh, wormwood, a poisonous, probably asteroid that j- just <clears throat> hits the earth and destroys or pollutes, I should say, a third of the rivers. Those who drink from those rivers and those springs die. And by the way, that wormwood could be something that we fire our missiles at, our nukes, to blow it up, kind of like the movie Armageddon, but it doesn't change course. It just, it just pollutes the, you know, uh, the third, of the, third of the waters. And then the fourth one, it, it, uh, you have the, actually, the book of Revelation tells us in the fourth one, uh, the fourth trumpet judgment, you have a third of the celestial bodies are darkened, both at daytime and at night. And then when you get into chapter 9, you have the fifth and sixth trumpet. And uh, maybe I have enough time to go through chapter 9, and we'll just cover 
go a little bit faster in the second part of this so uh, we can cover it all. But in chapter nine, you have, uh, you know, a, a star that falls from heaven. He opens the abuso and out come these terrifying creatures that, you know, have teeth like lions, you know, and, and, and long hair. They're in crazy scorpion-like creatures have a sting in their tail and they sting uh, the wicked and for five months. And for five months, they'll seek death and they can't even commit suicide. They can't even die. Uh, and it feels like a stor- scorpion sting. And by the way, believe it or not, that's a picture of God's grace because they're going to be separated from God forever in eternal torment. It gives them an opportunity to say, what am I doing? I need to repent, you know? And then you get to the sixth trumpet. And then when you get to the sixth trumpet, you have another uh, uh, judgment, which is similar. You have uh, a, uh, you have basically, which outgoing long into it, they have a king over them whose name is uh, Abaddon or Apollyon, in Greek and in Hebrew, Hebrew and Greek actually there, which means destroyer, and he unleashes 200 million of these entities which go forth, and they kill, guess what? They kill a third of humanity. Now, that's amazing because a quarter of humanity was just taken out. That leaves three quarters left. You take a third of the three quarters that are left, that's another quarter. That leaves half of humanity left. And by the way, a lot of that half that would be left have already been destroyed in those other plagues. So less than half the people are in existence at that time. And it's really, the way it ends in Revelation chapter 9 it is really sad because they don't repent. It says they give God glory. They don't turn from their idolatry, from their worship of demons, from their murders, from their 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 pharmacia, their sorcery, uh, from their porneo, their sexual sin, and from their thefts. And that's the heartbreaking commentary on humanity, on those who hate God and refuse to turn to Him, even though God pleads with them and then brings judgments to warn them of the judgments to come so they can repent before it's too late. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.